Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. We're just going to jump right in. Hope for a sexually broken world. Let's go for it, right? A couple weeks ago, Billy Graham went on to be with the Lord, one of the, one of the greatest evangelists that the world's ever seen. And one of the things that Billy Graham said about preaching was that, that preachers ought to preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And, and, and what he meant by that was this, is that we need to strive to show the implications of the work of Jesus at every intersection in life. If, if Jesus is really the hope of the world, and if his gospel is really the best news that we could ever hear, uh, then he's got something to say about every situation that the world finds itself in, every situation that we find uh, ourselves in. So we as a church want to strive to do that. And so we're doing this series called Gospel Ethics. Uh, we're going to hit it two weeks right now, but we've decided uh, as a church that we're just going to kind of put this on a drip. And we'll come back to it every once in a while and just hit things that we need to hear about, that we need some some handles from the Bible to, to grab onto what uh, is going on in our uh, culture. C.S. Lewis in his work, Mere Christianity, encourages us to think about our brokenness and our wholeness in terms of, of notes on a piano. Now, I don't know how many of you play piano or how many of you uh, don't play piano, but everyone's kind of fiddled around on a piano, I'm sure of that. Um, the piano doesn't have right notes or wrong notes. When you mess up a song, you don't rip the piano keys off your piano, or at least I don't, all right? We don't do that. It's just not something that we do. Um, the problem is not in the piano. Instead, the problem is in the timing or the place in which the note was played. Maybe it was out of key. Likewise, in our sexuality, our identity and our activity, it's all God's design. There's no wrong notes. They're all planned by God. And as we'll see today, the design is not flawed. In fact, as Genesis says, it's very good. Uh, God has created a very good existence for us, sexually speaking. And the flaw is, is that if the actions of our lives were, were notes on a piano, we're just prone to play the notes in the wrong places at the wrong times, church. That's really the essence of it. And, and at the root of every desire that you and I have is a desire to be loved, to be valued, to be seen, and ultimately to be known. And God has sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of His people who have received Jesus so that we might 
by His leading, play the right notes at the right time, sexually speaking, in our lives. I love what Henry David Thoreau says. He says, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their songs still in them. Church, my hope is this, is that that by the the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we'd play the the right notes at the right time when it comes to, to this topic. So the big idea of where we're going today is this. Jesus alone can move us from sexual brokenness to wholeness. So, so here's where we're going today. I got four kind of big, big things I want to talk about here. I want to look at the design of God first. Then I want to look at the distortion of sin. What's gone wrong? Then I want to look at the redemption of sexual brokenness. And then I want to look at the path of the church in the midst of sexual brokenness. So let's dig into the design of God here. If you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis 1, 26 and 28, I want you to take note of the order of creation here and what God calls very good and His design. So, so let's listen to the Word of the Lord here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And a few verses later, He says, and it was very good. You see, everything that about, God, about how God originally made you and I is very, very good. I mean, think about this. From the way we look to the way we relate to one another and to Him, He's, he's even called us to have dominion over the world, to, to, take, to take control, to steward the earth's resources, and to steward our bodies well for the sake of His glory. We don't simply bear God's image. We are God's image. So, so think about that. The image of God. It's like God carved out himself or carved out of himself you and me and your neighbor and the person sitting next to you and your kids he carved us out of himself we are the image of god it's not just something that we are and something that that we bear when things are going well in our lives no matter how much your life is messed up and jacked up this morning you still bear the image of god and you are his you notice that the complete image of god is a gendered image it's male and it's female. So without, without one or the other, it's not the full image of God. I think that's something to take note of. Men uh, without women in the world are an incomplete image. Women without men are an incomplete image. Men need women and women need men to bear the image of God. Also think about this. Nothing in the design of humanity is exempt from the image of God. It all is a part of the makeup of God carving us out of Himself. It's painting a picture of our complementary nature that we're designed to be together. So so we get that and we see that. And I think it's important to start there because a lot of times when we think about sexuality, we just think about the brokenness all the time. And we just hide in the shame. It's so important to see the glory of how God created us and created procreation in the world. And how, how, how it's very good. So let's, let's kind of move on here and look at the distortion of sin. You know, because of the fall of man, 
There's a lot of generalisms that are out there now. Words like chauvinism. Chauvinism is this idea that, that men are better than women. And then on the, the flip side of the ditch, there's feminism where women are better than men. And, and, and then you get into terms like egalitarianism where, where, it's, this, where it's, this, it's, it's this approach to try to get us to see each other equally, uh, but it distorts the Gospel because it says we're equal in value, which we agree with. The Bible would agree with that. But it says we're also equal in role, which the Bible would not agree with. Instead, what we're, what we're going for in gender is this. And then our relationship with the other gender is that there's a complementary nature. There's a reason why God has created men the way He's created them. There's a reason why God has created women the way that He has created them. And so we see this, and we, we, we understand this for the most part, but where did the brokenness come from? Now, I'm gonna, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. And it's, it's the Scripture that if you've been around the church for any, any season, you've probably read this before. But I want you to pay particular attention to how the fall has affected uh, personal identity, personal appearance, sexuality. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7-11. through 11. Then the eyes of both were opened. This is after they, they took of the fruit and ate that they were not supposed to. So the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. The first thing they recognize is something sexual, okay? It's the first thing that's broken that we take note of. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Among the, trees, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I don't think that was like a GPS coordinate question, by the way. It's like, where's your heart? Where's your, where are you spiritually speaking? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I, and I hid myself. And, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Or as we say in Kentucky, naked. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So the presence of God, church, which is the greatest comfort that we have, right? The peace of God that, that, that gives us peace in ourselves. The presence of Jesus in, in Matthew 28.20 where He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's, it's, it's lost in a sense here. And it's lost not in the, the physical sense because God is in their presence, but it's lost in the sense that they think there's a problem with God being present in their lives at this moment. Now, when we seek to become free from God as described here, we immediately enter into bondage to sin. Um, which leaves us with the residue of what I would describe Genesis 3 uh, encompassing this idea of shame. And, and there's, there's, there's no... Uh, there's no more clear place in our lives that we experience shame than in our sexual sin. It's the place that's the darkest place in our lives, and it's the place that, that, that causes us to have the most shame. Church, shame was never intended to be a part of your, your spiritual, your, phys your physical, and sexual makeup. Did you hear that? Yet it is the most pervasive thought that you have when you think about your sexuality. Shame. We don't see ourselves as very good. 
shame. Most of us punish ourselves for the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us, the ways that we feel, and the lives that we've lived. I mean, church, the wreckage is all around us, isn't it? I mean, just, just personally thinking in our own lives, we can think of scenarios, right? And then culturally, it, it's, it's, like a, it's like a megaphone has been given to the world, right? And it screams sexual brokenness. I mean, literally, 75% of news headlines are sexual headlines. Am I right? It's broken. Let's think about this. We live in a culture that encourages men and women alike to see themselves, meaning their entire identity, in terms of sexual attractiveness. Now, the fall affects everything deeply and everything but the Gospel speaks to that for us, right? Think about this on a personal level. From, from the premarital sex that haunts our marriages to the marriage that's been broken by infidelity. To the, to the loneliness and lack of completeness that, that unmarried people can feel, whether they're um, divorced, widowed, or single, never married. To the, to the child that's been abused by someone they should have trusted. To the secret attraction that we have to the, the same sex. To the confusion that we have in relationship to our own gender to the ministry leader who's strung out on pornography, to being sexually harassed at your workplace, to being oppressed and forced into a situation that you never signed up for. We're all broken nonsense, church. And the thing that the enemy wants us to do is to look at one or another and say it's worse or it's better. But I'm here to tell you today it's, it's all the same. We're all broken. The point is not, at least I didn't get pregnant. The, the point is not, at least I'm not gay. The point is not, at least I'm not strung out on porn. The point is not, at least I'm not seeking sexual reassignment surgery. It's not the point. The point is this, we have all fallen in our guilty, broken sexual sinners. Now, now here's the deception of the enemy. It's this, is that, that you cannot be known if something of what I just described is a part of your life. That you can't be known by God. That was the deception in the garden, wasn't it? The first thing they do is they hide when they see themselves. Did God intend that they hide? Or is the grace of God big enough for us to be exposed in front of God and to be loved by God? Paul seems to allude to this idea that sexual sin just hits us a little bit differently. And it's the same thing that we feel when we think about our own stories. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. It's this letter he writes to the church in Corinth that uh, would fit in well with our culture today. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, that's Paul's junk drawer term for sexual sin, okay? Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin uh, a person commits outside of the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. He's rebuking them. He's encouraging them to flee 
the damaging consequences of sexual immorality that are not only physical, okay, they're spiritual as well. Now, now I'm not a doctor, but we learn from scientific and, and a medical point of view that sexual sin, uh, sexual sin or sexual uh, addiction affects the ways that our brains function. It, trigger, it triggers hormonal reactions that affect your emotions, your physical state, and your sexual drives. And when we indulge in sexual sin, we begin to develop these habitual neurological pathways. And you know what that does? It literally makes it more difficult each and every time to resist the devil. And so we just take the bait. And we just keep taking it. And we, we feel like around our church friends, we've got to we got to present this posture that we're actually getting better about our condition. And when we can't do that, we just do the best thing we know how to do. Hide. And we're dying on the inside. We're dying on the inside when we live like that. There's also the spiritual element that, that sets it apart as a particular dangerous sin. Uh, because you know, marriage is ultimately this picture of the Gospel. It's the most clear way that God can describe our relationship with Himself through Jesus. And so, when we're busted up in the physical sense of our sexuality, and we participate in sexual immorality, we become isolated. And Jesus, in our minds, we go into this life of hiding just like Adam and Eve did. This life of fig leaf sowing. And... And there's no hope to be found in the darkness. So that's the bad news. You guys ready for some good news? Number three, the redemption of sexual brokenness. This is the passage of Scripture that Megan read right before that I think encompasses what the Gospel means for broken sexual sinners like you and me. So the image of God in us is distorted. Now it's not completely lost. Not even the worst person that you can think of in the world no matter what they've done, has completely lost the image of God because they were carved out from God. But instead, the image has been marred and it needs to be redeemed. It needs to be reconciled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this, this marred image has to be restored. So in our context today, God cannot leave us in our sexual brokenness and have fellowship with us at the same time. Apart from the, the work of Christ being applied to us, Restoring the image in us. This is what Colossians talks about. So let's dig into Colossians 1 to see what the hope is for broken people, specifically sexually broken people like you and I. Colossians 1, 15-23. We're going to read it again and then we're just going to unpack it. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He was what God created us to be like. He's the image. He existed before. The firstborn of all creation. For, for by Him, by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through Him, but not only through Him, for Him. Jesus is jealous for His image in this world. We were created for Him. He, he's before all things, and, and in Him, hear this, all things hold together. Nothing holds together without Him. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He's always been there before us, is what He's saying. 
For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile, to bring back, to buy back all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. And how will He do that? By the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated, sexual sinners, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order, get this, to present you holy, blameless, pure, and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. Just like in the Garden Church, there's nothing that you've done, nothing that you feel, nothing that has been done to you that is outside of God's sight. Now, for some of you, that's terrifying. But for all of you, it can be the best news that you'll ever hear. The fact that God knows you and He didn't leave the room. Do you know what I'm saying? It can be the best news. God's present, His presence in our life was never intended to haunt your life like we see in the garden. Instead, it was, it was intended to release you from the shame of hiding that there'd be parts of your life that no one else could know about and you could still be loved. God has done the unthinkable. God has sent the original image. Not a replica. He sent the real deal to the earth to redeem us in Jesus. Now in Jesus, the Scriptures say everything holds together. So if you're in here this morning and you feel like your life is like falling apart, it's probably because you're not trusting Jesus to hold it together is what He's saying. Or, I've found as, even as Christians, those that have professed faith in Jesus, we can give God parts of our lives, but we're really good at compartmentalizing. We won't give Him this area over here. And we'll still live in shame over here. And we'll just pretend that everything's okay. He's saying that you can have the real thing. He says that, that we've been alienated and, and, and uh, kind of exiled from God's presence because of our evil deeds, right? We feel that. He, we don't need anyone to tell us that. We feel the shame. We feel the brokenness. We just wish that we could have a do-over, don't we? Because it haunts us every day. He said, no, because of the death of Jesus, because He was perfect, because He did knock it out of the park in His purity, in the way that He lived sexually in the world, because He did that by faith in Him, now you are presented holy and blameless, a pure virgin in the sight of God for all to see. Because that's how good Jesus is. That's what He's come to do. That's what He's come to be in us is to, to cleanse us. We're holy and we're blameless. And because of this church, shame has no place in your story. In fact, I would say that it's just as sinful to you to, for you to feel shame in Jesus than it is for you to feel shame outside of Jesus. Shame has no part in your story anymore. And every moment that we live in that narrative of shame when Jesus has paid for us, we're living a lie. Because the Scriptures say that as far as the east is from the west, that, that He's cast our sin that far apart. Now, there are the reverberations of the fall still in our bones, consequences that we, that we, that we still grapple with, right? It's like, it's like Pete Scazzaro says, he says, you know, Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa still lives in your bones. You know what I mean? 
Like you still deal with, with, the, with the implications of that, but shame no longer is the dominant narrative of your life anymore. Now this grace, it, it motivates us. Because we see that all we've done is alienate ourselves from God, and all God has done is send Jesus to us to reconcile us, to buy us back, to bring us back into good standing. So now I want to get really practical and I want to speak specifically to how we can live countercultural lives in the midst of a sexual revolution. So number four, the path of the church in the midst of the sexual re- revolution. So what does this pathway of shame-free living look like for us? 2 Corinthians 3.17 and 18 is helpful for us as a grid to see this through. It says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, in, in followers of Jesus, where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's no longer bondage there. And we all, with unveiled faces, we can see God clearly now. We behold the glory of the Lord. And what does the glory of the Lord do when it lives inside of us? Here's what it does. It, it transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, because Jesus is the image, the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform you into that image every single day as you're being made more like Him. And as a, as a repercussion to that, we're able to say by the power of the Holy Spirit, no to sin. Now, we don't always do it well, do we? But we see ourselves progressing in that journey of, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as I once was, but I'm still not what I want to be. And so we're on this trajectory. So we're all a work in progress. I think we can agree about that. God is wasting nothing for the sake of your redemption and transformation. And because of that, church, here's where I want to get down to brass tacks. The church should see no one outside of the reach of grace. And I think broadly speaking, uh, the church sees a lot of people outside of the reach of grace. Am I right? We do. Specifically in regards to sexuality. So here's where the rubber gets the ro- meets the road here. Um, so the first thing we've got to do is this. I have three implications here. The first one is this. Choose to see and to repent of our own sexual sin. So what do I mean by that? The first thing you've got to do is choose to see it. You've got to choose to believe that you are just as broken as someone that's very explicit about their sexual brokenness. And what that does in your heart is it humbles you. And when you get humble on this level, all of a sudden, the grace of God lives in you in this beautiful way. It, 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 all of a sudden, there, are, there aren't people that are outside of the bounds of the work of Jesus. So, you know, we've got to continue to remind ourselves of the Gospel. And what we do is we, 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 look at our, we look at the Gospel, we look at our lives, and, and we see this gap and we repent. Not out of this place of fear, but out of this place of welcoming. And we begin to walk out of the darkness every single day into the light. Out of the, the hiddenness of sexual brokenness that leads to shame. So, so maybe some stuff has surfaced in your heart today. Uh, and it's terrifying for you to consider. In fact, I would say that's probably most of us, right? Um, let me just say that I'm sorry for the brokenness that you've experienced. I know that for some of us in the room, those aren't things that we've asked for. But the Holy Spirit has tremendous power um, to give us freedom from the bondage of shame. I want to encourage you uh, today to maybe begin to take the first steps 
toward walking in the light if that's you. James 5.16 says this, and I take this verse to the bank here, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Someone that's broken that's seeking to be made whole needs what? Healing. Well, James gets real explicit here and he says, listen, if you want to be made whole, you can confess your sins to God. But there's a role that the church, other brothers and sisters in the Lord, play in your healing and redemption. And you can't dismiss that. You cannot be an isolated Christian. You will struggle far more deeply than others that walk in fellowship. Now, I'm not saying that you go to your missional community and you, you air out your dirty laundry this week. I am saying that maybe you begin to pray. Maybe it's your discipleship group. I don't know. You begin to pray. Maybe, maybe all the discipleship groups in the church, there's like 15 of them. Maybe y'all just hit pause this next week and say, hey, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what I'm really dealing with. Maybe you just give a spot to do that. And all of a sudden, we walk into a new layer of light. A new layer of fellowship with God and with one another. Maybe that's an idea. You find a person or two to talk to about this and you begin to pray so that God can give that healing that we so desperately desire. Right, the second one is this church. Choose to walk into the briar patch of the sexual revolution with the heart of God for sinners. That's a, that's a mouthful, but it's exactly what I think God calls us to. So a friend of mine uh, asked a while back, should I go to my gay cousin's wedding? You guys are like, uh-oh, here we go. I didn't really give him an answer, but I did ask him this, what do you think the heart of God for broken sinners is? What do you think it is? I'm not going to tell you much else in my conversation because I don't want a bunch of emails tomorrow. But um, here's the deal. Why are we so prone to punish people with our absence in their lives? Because they're sinners. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm just going to cut you out of my life. Because you sin differently than I do. If you're a Christian, your gay relative already knows that you think that their lifestyle is sin. Trust me. They already know it. But Jesus was constantly spending time with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus spent time with prostitutes. Right? He did. And you know what happened with those guilty, sexually broken people a lot of times? They followed Jesus. Now, you think about the story of the woman at the well. Um, you know, he meets this lady in the middle of the day at the woman of the well. She's a, she's basically a prostitute. She's sleeping with lots of guys. And Jesus, um, he enters into the relationship with her, uh, sitting next to the well and begins to speak with her. And it's pretty obvious as the conversation goes along that she's broken because she wouldn't be getting hot, hot water in the middle of the day if she wasn't. And, um, Jesus is honest with her, but he's honest with her in love. You see, a lot of times what we do because the gospel hasn't seeded itself deeply enough in us, is we just spout off the truth. And we forget that the Gospel calls us to speak the truth in love. But Jesus does that, and she's one. She leaves her lifestyle. Here's a question for you. How do I represent or mirror Jesus to the marginalized, sexually broken people in Atlanta? I could go and tell you all kinds of statistics about the LGBT community 
in Atlanta or in Lawrenceville, Gwinnett County. It's all around. Most Christians wig out around the LGBT community. Completely wig out. Am I right? Yeah, it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Sure. If their sexual sin is the same broken mirror as my sinful shame, why am I afraid? I think we're afraid because we don't know how powerful the Gospel is. We don't know how powerful the strength of God is to redeem sinners. We don't understand how long His arm of salvation is. And so we think, in our unbelief, that we've got to narrow the gate to help Jesus out a little. Let's just kind of keep them away. Let me set the record straight here. Is homosexuality a sin? Sure. Is the LGBT community welcome at New City Church? I sure hope so. Now, now here's the deal. Are there difficult conversations that come from this? Absolutely. Absolutely there are. Difficult conversations not only for someone that's a homosexual to be a part of a of a Bible-believing church community, but also for a Christian that wants to stiff-arm them. It's, it's, the, it's kind of the, it's the other side of the ditch. We are called to recognize and celebrate the image of God that marks every soul on the face of the earth. And through gospel friendships, Jesus changes people. That's what He does. Is the gospel of your Jesus big enough for that church? Is it? Um, this is something that I'm growing in. It's embarrassing how little the Gospel seems to me sometimes. Is it the same for you? Can we agree to say that there's hope for every sinner that we, and that we are willing conduits of the Gospel to every type of broken, sexually, sexually broken sinner? Is the Gospel big enough for that? Now, now thirdly, I'm going to land the plane on this one. We must equip our children for the sexual revolution. Barna research uh, shows on Generation Z, which is the under 18 age. So um, if you're a 13 to 18 year old, they, they, they interviewed about 2,000 of you um, across the United States in different types of communities. It wasn't just you know, in downtown Manhattan um, or in rural uh, Georgia. It was all across the map. 70% of Generation Z, the 13 to 18 year old, age range, think that it's okay to be born one gender and feel another. Now, what that reveals to us is a confusion of gender and a confusion of Gospel ethics when it comes to thinking about the design of God. And why that's dangerous is, is because the implications of that play out into all types of manifestations. They also feel that it is worse not to recycle than to look at pornography. This is the 13 to 18-year-olds in our community. And the trends typically show that those that are younger, they're not, it's not appropriate to ask them these type of questions, but they're on the same trend, generally speaking. So because the Lord doesn't call us to respond with an attitude of fear, we respond with this attitude of faith and say, God, how can we equip this church to live out the Gospel in the thorny places? The young people in our church. Because here's the redemptive side of this generation. They are more transparent, passionate, and they want to know the real Jesus. Uh, not coffee shop Jesus. Not rock band Jesus. 
Not homeboy Jesus, but the one that has the power to raise people from the dead. That's the Jesus they want to know. And so how are we going to equip them to bear the image of Jesus redemptively in our world? First thing is this. Continuous sex ed is a part of gospel ed. Now the timing of this is of essence. I mean, let's think about this. We have this idea of when we're going to have the talk with our kids when the baby's in the womb, right? And then all of a sudden, some kind of conversation comes up when they're five and we're like, oh, right? I mean, we get freaked out about the questions that they're asking. But church, they're learning about sex all along. Uh, I would hope that they would learn more from us than they would from movies and music. Um, Now, most of us have horror stories about uh, the sex ed class we had in fifth or sixth grade, right? And the videos we saw and the pictures uh, and, and the things they sent us home with, right? I mean, we're just terrified to think about that. Um, or, or maybe even the, the conversation that your you know, awkward mom or dad tried to have with you that didn't go so well, you know? We're terrified of those types of things. And, and I think the antidote to this uh, is that we begin to put sex, sex ed on a drip instead of a fire hose. I mean, think about this. The, the way that, that, that uh, my children see uh, me embrace my wife when I get home from work is part of sex ed, right? Uh, the way that I speak to her, um, the way that I, that I, that I talk with people, it, it's, it's all part of teaching them how to live out of their unique identity. Now, there's going to be brokenness that manifests itself. I mean, don't go getting freaked out when your little boy puts on you know, his sister's Barbie shoes, you know? I mean, there's creative play involved. But what's it look like for us to enter in? One of the things that um, Megan and I do, now this is up to you, um, but when our kids have questions about um, kind of sexual things that really we would like not to talk about yet, um, we have just made a decision not to lie to them. Now, here's what this do- doesn't mean. Uh, we don't over-answer their questions either, you know? There's, there's kind of a, a boundary there. Answer the question, but don't over-answer the question. A lot of times, a simple answer is, is helpful. I mean, think about uh, you know, uh, a five-year-old kid. Uh, Daddy, how are babies born? Dad responds, uh, I respond, uh, well, mommy has a baby in her belly that comes out of her belly in about nine months. Um, the kid says, how does the baby get into mommy's belly? And dad says, that's a great question. Ask your mom. You know, um, I'm serious though. We we have all sorts of questions about the anatomy uh, of the human body, and and we've just made a decision to kind of just just talk about it because it's part of seeing the creation element of sexuality instead of just the falling element, right? When we lead with the negative, all we're seeing is the fall in our sexuality. We forget the Genesis one part of our sexuality that it was very good, and so how can we? How can we show them the very good even though they're going to see the very bad too? How can, we, how can we run those two together? The second thing is this. Do everything you can to equip your kids to engage the lies about sex with the truth. You know, um, so, so kind of tagging on to that last uh, conversation there. If you've got little kids, uh, Megan and I have found a few helpful books that uh, embarrass us to read to our kids, but we do. Um, the Story of Me, if you've got kids that are three to five, um, before I was born, if you've got kids five to eight, uh, God made all of me. There's also little books called Good Picture, Bad Picture. I mean, 
Do you, do you know the statistics say that, that your child is going to see a pornographic image by the, the age of 11? It, it probably won't even come out of your house, or maybe it will. It might come from a friend's cell phone in fifth grade. You just never know. And so the, the more proactive we can be about a healthy sex ethic with our children, the better off they're going to be, and the less afraid they're going to be to engage the world with the Gospel. For big kids, um, you know, I think it's obvious, but guard your children from, from unmonitored internet uses. There's lots of apps out there where you can kind of stalk your kids and what they're looking at and stuff like that. I think it's helpful, right? This week, uh, you know, in other ways, this, this week my kids were listening to this song. It's, it's about five years old called Call Me Maybe. Okay? Now, this is a, a song that's it's, 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 it's kind of a fun song to listen to. I asked my kids, I said, why do y'all like that song? And they said, because we like to dance to it. And I said, I like to dance to it too. <laughs> so we were talking about it, and I just pulled up the lyrics, and I started, I started reading them to my kids. I said, ripped jeans, skin was showing, hot night, wind was blowing. Where you think you're going, baby? Hey, I just met you. Here's my number. Call me maybe. Right? And so I began reading it and talking about it with my daughter, and she goes, so this girl doesn't even know this guy, but she wants to give him her number like real quick. And I said, yeah. She goes, that's silly. Like, why would you do that? Just, just put it out in the open and begin talking with your kids. Put it on the table. And lastly this, if you've got older kids, um, respond to sexual sin with the grace of the Gospel. Don't be naive about this. Uh, it's going to happen to some degree, even to your kid. How are you going to respond? You can lock them up in the room. They're still going to be exposed to it. They're still going to fall into it. How are you going to respond? Um, maybe some of you even have um, kids and their sexual sin has become very evident. And uh, it's embarrassing. You didn't think it could be your kid. You're teaching them more about the Gospel in their moment of shame than you did in every catechism, every Bible verse that you taught them. You teach them about Jesus in those moments. And so, how will you respond with the grace of Jesus in those moments? It's just something to think about. So who will save us from the sexual revolution? Jesus will. And church, no matter where you're at today, here's the good news. Jesus alone can move us and our world from sexual brokenness to wholeness. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You um, that You've entered into the thorny places of our lives, the thorny places of our culture, and You've given us great hope. We are thankful, God, that there is nothing in and about us that is unknown to You. God, as, as You search us and You know us, God, we pray that we would see equally the, the beautiful news that we can be known by God while we are still sinners. In fact, that's the beauty of the Gospel. While we were still sinning, You sent Christ to redeem us. And so Lord, I pray for my friends in here today. I pray for some of those that are just, just overwhelmed by sorrow this morning. God, would You be the comforter that You promised to be? Lord, I pray for those that are in the midst of the fire that are caught red-handed right now in these moments. How would you, in your kindness, lead them to repentance? To be faithful to their spouses, God, to have accountability with their computers, God. Right? 
God, may we be a church that enters in full of faith into the community of the most marginally sexually broken people that Jesus is big enough for them to. So Lord, we thank You for Your grace this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.